The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Hey, it's Tony Macia with the Charlotte Ledger, and you're listening to the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger by going to thecharlotteledger.com. Today's podcast is part of a special series we're doing in which we interview winners of the Charlotte Ledger's 40 Over 40 Awards. The recipients are people ages 40 and up who are making a big difference in the Charlotte area. People who saw a need and took action. You can find out more at ledger40over40.com. The host of today's podcast is Steve Dunn. In his day job, he's a mediator who offers dispute resolution services through the Charlotte office of Miles Mediation and Arbitration. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Steve Dunn. Today, I'm joined by Mike Boykin, CEO of Bespoke Sports and Entertainment. Welcome, Mike. Good morning, Steve. How are you? I'm great. I uh, spent some time trying to figure out what a sports and entertainment company does, and I poked around, and I wasn't sure how to formulate this question for you, but I think that the best way to clarify this for our listeners is to to let them know that you are the guy responsible for the dumping of Duke mayonnaise on football coaches' heads. Is that right? Well, I'm part of a team. Let's put it that way. In a, in a nutshell, our agency helps brands, organizations, companies utilize sports to meet business goals. It could be consumer-facing. It could be B2B. It could be employee recruitment retention. It could be a lot of different things. The one example you mentioned, the Duke's, Mayo Bowl and the Duke's Mayo Classic. We actually get to work with the Charlotte Sports Foundation, which is right across the block here from you guys. And it is a fun event. Duke's brand allows us to have fun and we are able to do fun and do things to help the community, whether it's the food bank, giving a $10,000 donation to Coach Beamer at South Carolina or Coach Loxley at Maryland when we dump mayonnaise on them. But it's, it's in good faith, but it's also to meet business objectives. Well, it, I, I think it serves to illustrate sort of what you do, which is there's a lot to it, but perhaps the most visible types of things that you do is like, if I'm going to a sports event as a spectator, I may encounter an experience along the way, whether it's outside on the grounds, or if I'm an invited guest, I may attend an event. I get, I rarely get invited to VIP events, but maybe someday there may be events for VIPs. And your folks are involved in creating those experiences and putting them on. Is that right? Yes. We come up with the strategy, the creative concepts, and how they're brought to life or executed. Could be at the venue, dumping mayonnaise or having a mayonnaise eating contest. It could be at retail. You go into the store, you register for a special experience. Could be online, could be social. Anywhere that you go and you interact with sports and the potential for a brand to make that experience better, that's where we go. Now, you may be tired of talking about Duke's mayonnaise, and yeah. I apologize for that. But it, for one thing, you can always tell them that the, the work that you did on behalf of their brand is now rippling out even through the Charlotte Ledger podcast. So there's, there's extra value being delivered there. But I, I do think that that is the mayonnaise getting dumped on the coaches' heads is something that a lot of people saw and a lot of people talked about. It truly went viral, not just around the country, but around the world. And it occurs to me that Coming up with that concept and executing on that concept is a way of talking our listeners through what you do, right? So in that situation, you 
you're working with Duke. Duke's, Duke's mayonnaise is your client, right? Correct. And this is a very unique relationship. One thing, every brand has different objectives, but also the roster of stakeholders is different. Internal, external. Here you have the Charlotte Sports Foundation, Luke Wire, another local agency. You have the Duke's brand and different departments within Duke's. You have ESPN and ESPN events, and that includes production, on-air, advertising, branded integration in the broadcast. So there's a lot of potential buttons to push to get that all to come together. It's kind of like an orchestra. The, all the instruments play together. That's when beautiful things happen. And in this situation, there's great collaboration. We get to work with many great brands, but this one has tremendous collaboration. Nobody's worried about who's getting credit. We want to elevate the brand. We want these virtual experiences. So a lot of times it's how people collaborate. And I tell people a great idea gets better as it goes around the room with the different perspectives that each of these different stakeholders has. Well, I love the perspective about teamwork that you bring to the work and the analogy of an orchestra. It strikes me that the work that you do involves a lot of creativity, a lot of generating of ideas, but that there's also execution involved. You got to implement the thing in, in a situation in which there's a lot of moving parts and a situation, a high pressure situation, in which you got deadlines and you've got, you know, a day on which an event is occurring or an experience is, is got to happen. How do you do that balancing between the, the creative and the implementation of your creative ideas? Great question. Sometimes I don't know. So I'll just be honest with you. Well, you've been it, doing it a while. It, and it really, again, depends on the, the client and the event. And, you know, whether it is a live event or, you know, recording, is it a content play? Is it a data collection play? All of those things require different plans. But our team is great at making plans. And they try to make them as detailed as possible. Because just like anything in life, you get on the ground, something goes wrong. So the more you have pre-planned, the more you have gone over it and practiced it and communicated it, the, the better prepared you are to handle when something pops up. One of the things that your company, one of the ways that it defines itself is as being a, a smaller agency, one that ha is populated by folks who've got experience working with larger agencies, but is itself a smaller agency. And what, what does that mean to you and how does it inform your work? Well... I'm going to tell you a story. Greg Bush, who's my partner, when we left a big holding company agency, we had a good run with GMR for like 15, 16 years. And when we started, we had one sports client, Miller Brewing Company. And then over time, we had 80 plus clients around the globe. Go to the Olympics and we'd have 10 clients, the World Cup, the Super Bowl. We came, became so big that we were kind of detached from actually sitting down with the clients, with the CMO and understanding their business, understanding their competitor. So when we lost a couple of accounts in our last year there, we did an autopsy, and we couldn't believe we lost. We were like, we had great ideas. We had great chemistry. How did we lose? And we had clients that, you know, thankfully told us the truth and said, you know what, I didn't want to be client number 47. And that was an aha moment. That's when we said, you know what, there is a niche, a need, for emerging brands to have senior people who have great experience, but who will walk with them. Well, I like this word covenant. I had a CMO tell me, you know, all agencies are like, don't be like this. Have a covenant with the leadership. And that is a deep level of trust and commitment 
on both sides to truly understand their business. And that allows us to come up with more customized solutions. And I think the one of the big changes in the industry is how data is used for that. You know, we have a data and analytics group and we invest a lot of money in tools for them to have the detail and data on consumer behavior, consumer preferences by geography, age, sport, activity across the board. And that helps us make sure we're at least in the right swim lane. When you're looking at that data, is this is it for the purpose of deciding how you're going to approach the client's needs or is it for purposes of evaluating your own results or is it sort of both? We like it when it's before anything has happened. Sometimes we are brought in, hey, we have a relationship with a major league baseball team and we're not getting out of it what we thought. We're getting eyeballs, but we're not getting sales. Our workforce is not engaged. Can you help develop plans? And sometimes we have to change the asset mix. What a partnership has it included in it, they may have the wrong assets. Now, when we, you say assets in this context, what do you mean by that? Things like tickets, suites, use of marks, social posts, billboards, every you know, TV commercials. It, there's a whole litany of things. And then we have a valuation method on the front side. If we're looking at opportunities for companies, we will look at that asset mix and we will value every line item against what we think the business objectives are so that we can make a decision. Does it score well? Does it index high for this customer base and this brand? Or does it not? How could it, if we change the asset mix, could we adjust that valuation? What's it been like for you professionally? to strike out on your own now as the CEO, as the, the guy at the top of the pyramid, making decisions, seeing the direct connection between your own efforts and the success or the lack of success of the company. How's that been for you as you're also working to cultivate this deep relationship, this covenant, as you described it, that you have with your clients? A blessing, an absolute blessing. If you would have told me this when I'm was in school at South Carolina or at grad school in Ohio, that this is what I would be doing, I would have laughed in your face. But that's the way life is. It's not a, a, a climb without curves or disappointments or pitfalls. But to get to this point, you know, and be surrounded by 25 incredible people, incredibly smart, they're great givers, they're collaborative, they care about this community. I mean, you check the boxes. There's not... These are, these are the best of the best that I get to work with. So I, I consider it a blessing. And then when you look at our clients, they have trusted us. This is their, their job, their life, their careers. We, we enjoy seeing our clients get promoted. <laughs> you know, we enjoy seeing them get other opportunities. That means we have worked together well to generate results. Well, when we opened this conversation and I tried to blame you or credit you for dumping mayonnaise on football coaches' heads, the first thing you said was, I'm part of a team. And you, as you described the talented people that you work with and the admiration that you have for them, I imagine it is important to you to cultivate a culture at Bespoke whereby people feel empowered to make the most of their own professional lives and that this is part of the reason why the company has been rated uh, one of the best places to work. It is a passion. It is in my heart. I tell people sometimes when you work for a company or a leader, you learn what to do 
And sometimes you learn what not to do. And things that I saw maybe that affected me in a negative way or affected my colleagues, I would say, I will never do that. And then I try to listen. And I've been fortunate to be in executive leadership where culture is the, a key topic. And it's really about the character of the organization. What are the things that are fundamentally true? You can have micro cultures, you know, accounting and finance can operate this way and the rest of the organization like that. We, we have certain basic fundamentals that we strive for. Everybody there comes with a work ethic. Everybody there comes with some humility because we all schlep boxes or clean up storage or pick up people at the airport at crazy hours. You know, there's some really non-glamorous parts of this, but everybody does it with a smile. And if you, you're not there and you can't do it or your sister's in town and you want to go to the movie with her, somebody's there for you to hand the ball to. And if you don't pick up the ball, they will, it'll stick out, but then that makes you even closer to them. Well, it sounds like this concept of collective responsibility and accountability is a big part of the culture that you're trying to develop over there. And it sounds like you've had some experiences over the years that maybe were a, were a little bit different from that, a, a different leadership style and one that you, you learn from in terms of things not to do. And probably without naming any names, unless Myself you really Myself included. Want well, that, okay, that, sure. No. I, I'm curious about that. I'm, I'm always interested in stories of setback you know, failures, mistakes. And I'm curious what specifically you've learned from your, either because you did it or someone did it to you. We don't have that much time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, I mean, there are, you got a big one, (laughs) um, uh, multiple big ones that cost multiple million dollars. And, you know, some of the things I've learned is due diligence, you know, really do due diligence. If you're going to be business partners, you know, don't rush into things, which, I was probably quick to trust and didn't believe in the process of due diligence. Now, what you mean there is, I'm, I'm guessing, right? And I, you, may, you may or may not want to get into all the no, details of it. I'm glad to share. Well, I mean, I'd like, you know, I'd like to know sort of some of the specifics. Like, is this a situation where you're confronted by an opportunity where your, your judgment was clouded by what appeared to be a really lucrative opportunity, but looking back, you, you should have dug under the rocks a little bit more? Well, this would, we'll call this mistake number two. Entered into a business and didn't truly understand the details of an operating agreement. Uh, and yeah. you have a number of partners. Right. And you think that you have a certain control and can guide. But if you look at the small details, the operating agreement says this. And if somebody has 51%, that means you really don't have a voice. And so that's that's just one. But- no, that's absolutely right. You know, as as a former lawyer myself, I encountered situations all the time where you you go into a you go into a deal thinking that you know how things are, but you can't always just take it for granted that th- the dynamics are never going to change. They sometimes do. Well, a different legal note is it's funny that we're hitting on some legal notes because uh, you may be in the right, and there was a situation where I was part of an LLC, and it was clear that my partner and I had made the right decision, and we were honoring the agreement. And a very influential attorney here in Charlotte pulled me to the side and said, Mike, I got good news and bad news. The good news is you're right. The bad news is he will litigate you into the poorhouse. And litigation is the sport of kings. I'd never heard that, but oh my God, was he right. And so those are lessons. If you run a business, you know, everybody gets knocked down. And I think you just got to get up. I tell people I've been knocked down at least 10 times. 
but I'm up the eleventh time. Yeah. Well, I think you know, I think having set setbacks like that is a huge part of the process of being in business for any period of time. And I think if you have the right attitude about it, I've, I had a client and a friend once who got sued, and I was commiserating with him and saying, "I'm you know, I'm sorry this happened to you," and he said, "Hey, this is great." You know, you're, he was an immigrant and he said, you're no one in America until you get sued. <laughs> and so there is an aspect of success that where, as you sort of climb the ladder, you're confronted with different kinds of challenges. And the, sometimes the types of challenges that you're confronted with are part and parcel of, and a sign of your growth. Absolutely. You, you're making me think as we get ready for Daytona next week, the Daytona 500, Years ago, after one of these so-called experiences, I remember going in the garage and feeling sheepish and embarrassed at had what had happened to me the previous year. I felt like, oh my God, what a failure I am, what a dummy I am. <laughs> and, uh, one of the drivers came up and put his arm around me, and he kind of knew what was going on, and he said, well, you just lost y your rookie strike. You don't get yellow tape anymore. And I thought that was a great way to put it, like, you, you are going to have some nicks and cuts and bumps and bruises along the way. Learn from them. I try to pass that on to our team is I am excited for you to make a mistake. But, you know, if you have good reasoning, you've done your homework, you've got your uh, rationale, and you think you're doing the right thing. If you don't care or you didn't do your homework, then that's a problem. And then repeating the problem or repeating the mistake is a real problem. But if you really genuinely care, and you have thought it out, that's fine. You, you're still going to make mistakes. Well, one of the things that you've done, in addition to being the CEO of Bespoke Sports and Entertainment, you also have started a networking group, Charlotte Sports and Business. What is that group? Well, again, I'm not going to take all the credit. I don't like to give John Show credit for much, but he is my partner in crime on this, along with numerous teammates back in the day at GMR and now at certainly at Bespoke and then other people in the sports and entertainment community. About eight times a year, we have a breakfast and about three or four times a year, a happy hour, where we invite anybody in the industry. Uh, you could be someone who's relocated here, you're getting out of college, you've lost your job, you're looking for a change, or you just wanna learn and meet people. And that's the only thing we say when we have these events and shout out to Winston Kelly and the great people at the NASCAR Hall of Fame, they allow us to have this event there. And then every speaker we have, and we've had some big ones from every walk of industry, they do it for free. So there's no commercial benefit. They just come in, it's people helping people. And the power of networking, I, I can't emphasize that enough. The one thing that we try to communicate that it's not transactional. If you show up there and all you want me to do is help you get a job, I'll pick up on that pretty quick. And I may do it once, but if you are open to being you know, a two-way street and you help others in attendance there with anything, it could be listening to their preparation, their elevator speech, working with them on their resume, your sister worked at Lowe's and they're interviewing there, find the ways to connect and bring value to others, not just yourself. Did you always know about the importance of networking and how to do it effectively, or is this something that you figured out over time? No. Jim Bailey, who's now got an agency called Red Moon Marketing, I believe at the time Jim was working for Coca-Cola. And I had parted ways with Creative Sports, which was ESPN, and it was time to do something different. 
on a Friday afternoon, I went in to see Jim. And back in those days, people had Rolodexes, which were contact cards. Jim sat there for an hour and a half. And maybe there were 20 different names that I should reach out to. And there was context. He would say, and mention this to them. Or they like this. Or they need this. And that just kind of hit me. If I ever am in a position to help others do what Jim did for me, that I'm going to do it <laughs> times 10 because I know how important. And, I, and this is a word of wisdom to those out there who are looking. If you're looking for jobs in the service industry online, good luck and God bless because you don't know if your resume will ever be seen. There's you know, a small agency like ours. If we post a job opening, we'll get hundreds of resumes. Do you think I look at all hundred? Heck no. If we get five or six really good ones, that's when the hunting stops. We'll interview, and if it doesn't work out, we'll go five or six more. But if your last name starts with Z, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, and, but the one that you will look at is the one that your colleague has highlighted for you at the at the networking event. Someone says, "Hey, you know, I, I got a call from a, an interesting kid who's looking for something." Right. It's that personal one-to-one connection that gets things done. I get those quite frequently. And most often is, would you just do an informational interview? Because they really haven't been through the experience. They don't know how a hard butt like you is going to put them through the grinder in a playful way. But I tell them, this is reality. You need to prepare. And preparation is not Googling for 20 minutes. And so we have these little conversations. But I'll also put it back on the person who's calling me. If they're calling and say, hey, candidate a b or c here is really good and you should think about hiring them i said so i can come out and kick your butt if they stink just you, if you're putting your name on the that's line, right yeah i'm, I'm gonna come I'm hold you accountable yeah, this is on you yeah <laughs> and the, whoa wait wait yeah, a now hold on a minute i don't really know him that well right yeah. yeah so i get some of that well it's a good way oh that's a great way to to filter through right? right i'm curious you mentioned your interviewing process and it sounds like it's pretty rigorous what what are you trying to find out about someone who's coming to you for a job during the interview well again we have a great team so the way we're structured now uh, most of them other members of the team will vet they will get to a, a final two or three or four but most most recently we just made a senior hire in which i probably talked to 20 plus people greg and i you know, we had an idea of what we needed, what we thought could help take us to the next level. And so that was a several-month process, many hours of conversations and talking to other people in the industry about certain people. And, you know, I, I want to see some of the same things. You know, we talk, work ethic, you know, how do they synthesize information? Are they, you know, smart about the industry? But it's going to be attitude. Are they going to fit our culture? Are they going to fit with the client. So the fit part of it but is crucial. The work ethic is crucial. This is not a nine to five, 40 hour a week job. I mean, events, travel on weekends, holidays. I think the, the week of the, you, you mentioned the Dukes Bowl, but before that we had the Jumpman Classic with Novant, like December, 2021, they went right to the Military Bowl. Then we went to the Mayo Bowl and then we went to the Orange Bowl. And that was bang, bang, bang. That's the holidays. And so these people sacrifice a lot. I need to know that. But the curious, generous thing that I've mentioned probably 
too many times I like curious people. That means they don't know everything. They want to continue to get better. I'm way better than I was last year. And that's because I'm around great people who help me. And if I just open up and listen and watch, I can learn. And if I can help them in whatever area, I'll try to help them. You mentioned taking the business to the next level. What does that mean to you as someone who came from a large agency, found that it wasn't what clients always wanted, explored a a different niche where you can have a deep relationship with your clients? How do you balance growth and the opportunity to take things to the next level against this commitment that you have to the direct connection with the client and the client's needs? That's the million dollar question. I think about it every day, but I think growth in every part of our life is essential. So when I think about growing the agency and Greg thinks about growing the agency, it's for our investor partners, it's for ourselves and it's for our teammates to create new opportunities. We moved into a new office. It cost a lot more this year than I had ever dreamed to upfit that office. So to get the technology, to get the resources, it takes additional funds to give back to the community like we like to give back. It takes more funds. So we, we have to grow. That is a, a mandate. And, you know, but the balancing part, that's where it comes in because I want everybody there to have a great quality of life. So it, it, sometimes they blur. Sometimes you know, bringing your eight-year-old in and letting him play video games while you have a meeting that might have to happen or let them play ping pong or let them watch something on one of the TVs. I, I don't care. Bring your sister and brother in, whatever it is that kind of allows you to have some quality of life while meeting your, your obligations. Well, the fact that you have video games and ping pong at the office, that, that says something in itself, right? Uh, the office is really nice and I want you to come over and see it. Yeah. I'd love to. I want yeah. to, I want to see where you spend all that money. Well, it might not be a lot to some, but it felt that we sure felt like it was it was a big investment, but it's been worth it. Well, speaking of investments, you mentioned giving back to the company and that being something that is important to the company. I'm curious what it is about giving back that you find rewarding and what are your favorite ways to give back to the community, whether it's through Bespoke or on behalf of yourself personally? Well, I think we had this conversation in the lobby was, you know, I was not a happy giver for a lot of my life. I'd say until I got somewhere in the forties, it kind of dawned on me that, you know, no matter where I was, there's always going to be people that have more, but generally there's going to be a lot, lot, lot more people who have less. You mentioned discovering within yourself, the capacity to be a happy giver, something that probably occurred in your forties. We're here because you were awarded the 40 over 40 award by the Charlotte Ledger. I wonder what else in your life, whether it's related to this or whether it's entirely different, has come to you in this stage of your life that's that's different and that you reflect on and that informs the guidance that you provide to the folks that you work with and to your friends and family. Well, I look at it like this. When I came out of grad school and I had lived a pretty affluent life. My father was a dentist. Mom was a nurse. I didn't know it. I didn't know that how lucky we were. And when I came out of grad school and I'd worked at the Spectrum in Philadelphia, and six nights of Springsteen and the Final Four and the Sixers and the Flyers and Earth, Wind, and Fire, and it was just like, yeah, I'm a badass. <laughs> you know, I, 
and I thought I knew everything, and, you know, you worked in Des Moines, Iowa. Well, you can't hold a candle to me. And how disgusting that is to think that that's who I was. So over these humbling experiences, I've certainly learned to, to you know, I don't know what the other person's gone through, and I like to hear that because they, they can change me. I've have had conversations change how I feel about subjects, which I never would have happened. And I tell people now that I'm, you know, 65 going on 13, that when I look at the universe, I have all these stars and points in my life that I can connect that are all around me. It's amazing. It's amazing. And that means I don't know anything. <laughs> that's the part I get. That's like, you know, wow. I may know something about this subject or this city or this sport, but I really don't know enough about this. And these things come together and it just makes me realize the, the amount of things that I do know is a blessing, but the amount that I don't know is overwhelming. Well, you have lived in Charlotte now more than once, right? What's your history with this town and, and what do you think about this city? First of all, I'll just say I love it or wouldn't have come back twice. Moved here in the early 90s for a job opportunity. Lived on Lake Wiley with my kids and, and wife at the time and just had a great experience. We liked playing on the lake. We could go down to Columbia and see my Gamecocks play. My brothers and sisters were close. My parents were alive at the time. It was just a much better uh, experience, and it felt home to me. It felt people talked like I did at that time. The traffic wasn't quite so bad. But as I was growing, so was the city. I left in 98 to go to Milwaukee to work on the Miller Beer account and work for GMR, and it was a great experience. But when I sat down with their executive leadership, I said, after we get Miller cooking, you know, we have a lot of resources. Why don't we build out the sports practice? But let's build it out in Charlotte. And they looked at me and said, why Charlotte? And I said, because I can recruit people anywhere on the East Coast to live in Charlotte. We're close to the beach, close to the mountains. We have some professional sports. We have NASCAR. It's a very livable city, great airport, all the things you, you hear in the, the, the spiel. I can recruit there. So in 2000, we opened an office over on Mint Street. I think we had four people or so. We then moved down on Moorhead and over time built you know, the largest satellite office in the company's network of dozen cities. And I believed it was because we could get great talent. A lot of sports had a, a presence here, a lot of college. We were close to the SEC. We were close to the ACC, you know, all the other conferences. It just was a it was a great place for somebody in the sports marketing business. And then you look at the sports business journals here, ESPN, you know, with the SEC network down in Valentine. There's just a lot going on and some great people here. What do you see as the future for Charlotte? If you envision 20, 30 years from now, what do you think Charlotte looks like? I'm afraid to say Atlanta. <laughs> I, I say all the time that Charlotte is like Atlanta 30 years ago <laughs> but 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 I've, I've been reminded recently maybe not so much because I think 30 years ago or Atlanta had the Olympics right or 20 years ago 1996 yeah that's yeah. right so I mean I don't know I don't know <laughs> we seem to be on that trajectory and you say sorry to say but what do you mean by that because no, Charlotte's because got Atlanta's got a lot of problems that uh, Atlanta's got are the problems that Charlotte would like to have love Atlanta I grew up in Aiken the Atlanta Braves, listening to the Braves back then was the highlight of my you know, young life. 
So, and I still love Atlanta. I love going there for the SEC championship, maybe the greatest sport event in this country every year. It is fantastic. Encourage anybody, if you ever get a chance, go. There's so much great about Atlanta, but you kind of get handcuffed by the transportation. You know, you, you really can't get around. And I'm, I hope it doesn't happen here. And maybe. Well, how do we, how do we avoid it? Billions of dollars to mass transit that I don't know where we get the billions of dollars. Right. I don't know. So, but in terms of the people, you know, we have hundreds of people moving here every day. I've seen, you know, drastic change in just the topography, the, the drive home where there used to be forests are now divi- uh, housing divisions and subdivisions. And those are needed. These people need places to live. So I think we'll continue to, to spur out. I mean, there's just so much good here. And I hope and pray for our leadership that I only meet about 95% really nice, good people that we don't lose that civility and that we care about each other. Well, that's a vision for the future. Mike Boykin, thank you so much for being with us today on the Charlotte Ledger Podcast. Thank you. That's it for today. The Charlotte Ledger Podcast is produced by Lindsay Banks. You can find out more about the Charlotte Ledger at thecharlotteledger.com. And you can find out more about our 40 Over 40 awards at ledger40over40.com. QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Network.com.